Good morning. Got some new stuff going on today. Don't have a, a clock, but uh, I ran out with the emergency of knowing that I needed one. And so you can be rest assured, too, that I have one. For those of you that are new, they're laughing because they know I need one. Well, I'm going to be continuing today uh, with 1 Corinthians 9, 15 through 27. And it's some difficult passages, and, and you, can, well, you can turn there now if you want, but uh, I'm going to review a little bit what we've looked at, because actually, chapter 8 through 11, 1 are actually a unit, uh, where Paul brings forth this issue of idle food. Uh, so far, as Todd has been preaching through chapter 8, Paul refutes the Corinthians for eating food sacrificed to idols, and the big issue is this. They were using their knowledge to determine what was right for them instead of allowing love to govern what they did, which sought the best of others. And essentially what Paul is telling them is they should sacrifice their own rights for the good of others. See, love seeks the good of others, not their own end. Uh, Selfishness and pride is what seeks after your own good. Me my freedom, my rights. But the Corinthians were using their knowledge to justify their compromise, their compromise to the fundamental principle of Christianity, and that is love. They wanted to be a friend of the world and a friend of God. And James says, as, as Todd noted, uh, you can't be both a friend of the world and a friend of God. They didn't want to be set apart. They wanted to fit in. They didn't want to be rejected by the world. And so they compromised. And they justified their ability and their right to live just like the world. And at the same time, they compromised their faith. See, what they were seeking is this, and, and it'll be distasteful when you hear it. I know it is to me. They were seeking a convenient Christianity that didn't disrupt the pattern of their life. One that was convenient. And so in chapter 9 here, Paul gives himself as an example. His first example, Paul, uh, Todd preached about, uh, 1 through 14, the key term was his right. And it focused on Paul's right as an apostle. He had a right to eat and drink. He had a right to a believing wife. He had a right to refrain from working and just preach the gospel full time. But he says he didn't use this right, but endured all things. Now, does that sound like a term that sounds convenient and comfortable? He endured all things for the gospel. Paul used his freedom to lay down his rights, not to take them up, for the sake of the gospel. For the good of the Corinthians and the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Instead of taking up his rights for his personal benefit, he freely sacrificed them in order to love others well. And then today we're going to look at a second example in 9, 15 through 23. The key term here is when, and you see it over and over. And it focuses on what Paul uses his freedom to lay down his rights for. Why does he lay down his rights? And so 
this, the text reads, so that I may win more. Verse 20, so that I might win Jews. Also 20, that I might win those who are under the law. 21, so that I might win those who are without the law. 22, that I might win the weak. And finally, all things for the sake of the gospel. And then we'll finally look at his third example in 924 through 27. The athlete's self-discipline and abstinence to win a prize. Paul reveals why he denies himself for the gospel to win a prize. And you might notice in your bulletin, the title of this sermon is Winning the Prize. Or it might be said like this, Winning the Prize. And the question that it begs is, what is the prize you're seeking to win? We're going to be focusing on a felt problem today. And our text and Paul is going to unravel this felt problem for us. So listen closely to this problem. How can we live the good life if we give up our rights to that life for the good of others? How is this good news? I've been sick and I'm weak. And we're going to pray right quick before we get started, okay? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for your grace. Thank you ultimately for your son, Jesus Christ. To whom, through whom, and for whom are all things. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning in your word. That you would open our hearts, open our ears, that we might receive the word that you have for us the word of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Let this gospel evermore be bearing fruit in our lives, for we are your people and you are our God. To you be the glory. Amen. Well, again, the felt problem. I want us to grasp this. How can we live the good life if we give up our rights to that life for the good of others? And how is this gospel good news? Do you feel this problem? Let me spell it out a little bit. I'm, I'm hoping this problem will become a little more intrusive, a little more personal, and a more deeply felt problem to you. Here's the American dream from dictionary.com. Listen closely. A life of personal happiness and material comfort as traditionally sought by individuals in the U.S. That's the American dream. Here's how this dream is often sold to our kids, and it might have been sold to you this way. Ready? You can be anything you want to be. Because the key to happiness is self-actualization. Uh, the path is work hard, get an education, and because you're Christian, be good. Sacrifice and discipline yourself to get all these things for you, yourselves, so you can be happy. And then we'll tag on some verses for a Christian version. Do it hardly as unto the Lord. He has a plan to prosper you while on this earth. Just like he prospered Jesus on this earth. Here's how our children, and maybe we also interpret this dream. It's not much different. I need to do good in school and go to a good college so I can get a good job. One I like. One that's fulfilling and that pays me a lot of money so I can be free, which I'm free because I'm wealthy, to pursue my personal happiness 
wherever I see fit until I retire and take my ease. And we'll tag on a Christian verse. Ready? Pursue my personal goals to all the glory of Christ, whatever that might possibly mean. Does that sound like a familiar narrative within our culture? The reality is, is that the fundamental understanding of the American dream is no different from that of the Corinthians' understanding. I'm free to pursue and enjoy all that this life has to offer me for my personal happiness is number one. There's a thing called individualism. It's the ruling paradigm of our culture. And it says my personal happiness is the most important thing. Therefore, I pursue my interests and my goals above all else. The values that prevail in this paradigm are the freedom of independence and self-sufficiency. That I can come to a place that I have need of no one or nothing. I'm self-sufficient and independently good. I'll rely on others only if they contribute to my personal interests. And all others, church, family, whatever you got, they all come second or third or fourth or wherever. Not sure if this is you yet. There's a couple of different brands, and I want to tell you what those are because you'll probably find both of them fit you a little bit, maybe one more than the other. It actually accounts for the, the, the tension between older and younger generations. Older generations seem to, be, seem to be one type and younger generations more of the other, but they're both infected by individualism. Here's how they go. The first one's utilitarian individualism. We oftentimes mistake this for the Judeo-Christian ethic. Uh, which I will challenge that notion in a little while. Uh, it focuses on personal achievement and material success. Believe social good is always found by pursuing your own personal interests. It embraces the guidelines and the rules of society because they help the individual to benefit for themselves. This is utilitarian individualism. And then there's another brand. And usually these are together, but it's expressive individualism. I did it my way. Freedom to express uniqueness against all constraints of society. So if the church constrains my freedoms to be me, ah, done with it. I can have my own personal relationship with God. I don't need the church. Does that sound like a familiar disposition? Rules and social conventions, they threaten my personal expression and my individuality. And if they do, they're no longer good. The central themes are freedom and fulfillment. I need to be free to be me because that's the highest good. Freedom becomes the rationale for reducing responsibilities that might limit one's personal independence or fulfillment. You ready? My family, if they are too much of a constraint on me for me getting to be who I am, I'll sacrifice them because I should get to pursue my own personal happiness above all others. What about the church? If they're a constraint to my personal happiness and pursuing that with all the vigor that I have, well, then I'll separate myself from them a little bit. 
whatever constrains me from being the fullness of my vision for myself, those things I will cast off. I got to be free to be me. That's expressive individualism. Here's the call of individualism. See if you can hear it. Me. My. I. Me. My. I. But enough about me. Tell me what you think about me. One of Tom's favorite lines. As a Christian, we might say this. It's fixing to get personal. So, It's not about me. See, I do all things for my family. My family is my ministry. My wife and my kids. You, do you hear it? Me. My. I. Those at the center of my interest. You know my kids. Uh, and the one whose scripture says that in taking care of her, I take care of myself. You know, my wife, uh, they are my ministry. You hear the theme? The ones in whom all my personal interests and ambitions reside, they're my ministry. Me, my, I. I take care of number one and make sure I don't step in number two. And if that offends you all, I'll define number two in a little while, and it won't. Now that we've gotten a little more personal, tell me if you can feel the problem. Christ says, give up your rights and give your life for the good of others, and so does Paul. In 1024, in this section, his point comes up. He says this, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. That's pretty straightforward. In 10.33 and 11.1, which ends this whole discourse on idol, he says this, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved, be imitators of me. Who's that? All of you. Just as I also am of Christ. That's pretty straightforward too. Now, compare this actual Judeo-Christian ethic, and I would argue that is a Judeo-Christian ethic. Compare that to America and Corinth that says this. Seek after your own good, your own profit, and your own happiness above all else. They're diametrically opposed to one another. They are the furthest extreme from one another. That's why James says... You can't do both. <laughs> That's impossible. They're complete opposites. How can you do both? And so here's the felt problem again. And tell me if you feel it a little bit. How can we live a good life if we give up our rights to that life for the good of others? And how is this gospel good news? You feel that problem a little more? We sang about it. I don't know if y'all realize, but almost every one of those songs were in line with this message. Well, let's consider Paul's exhortation, and his, which is his exhortation is through his example now to the Corinthians. And here's what you're supposed to do with this example. You're supposed to measure your life to the life example of Paul and Christ. That's what, that's what the intention of this discourse is for. So, feel free to take your life 
and run it alongside Paul's and ask yourself the question, is this the life that I'm seeking? This is the standard, not your knowledge about the truth, but the alignment of your life to the truth. And that's what you're supposed to do with the example. So in 1 Corinthians 9, 15 through 23, Paul just finished telling about all his rights as an apostle, and he transitions to his point, his willingness to lay down those rights for the good of others. He takes on a lower status, that of a laborer, a genuine, a, a manual laborer, not the high status of apostle, but manual laborer. Now, I want you to notice something. Low-status people don't really have rights and freedoms. I don't know if you've ever recognized that. The only people that have rights and freedoms are those with high status. The very ones who are unwilling to surrender them. I want to point something out. (laughs) That we in our culture have more rights and freedoms than any humans who have ever walked the face of the earth. So for us to think for one moment that this isn't a problem for us would be a mistake. I know it's a big problem for me. Well, Paul's going to insist on renouncing these rights and freedoms and that it's the right thing to do for the one who is captured by Christ. Because when you're captured by Christ, you're controlled by the necessity of winning others not by selfish advantages or uh, indulging in your own dreams and fantasies about what your life could be, but instead, advancing the gospel dominates your life. And what he's wishing is that this attitude were more evident in the lives of God's people so that all the world would sing how great is our God because they've experienced that greatness in his people. Well, Paul purposely surrenders his rights and adapts himself to others to win them to Christ. Uh, Any knowledge he has, any rights he has, and any freedoms he has, he lays down in service to others, and he allows love to direct those, not his own personal benefits. So let's look at 915. Paul says this, But... And this is after telling of all his rights. He says, but I have used none of these things, these rights. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. And you don't see it here, but a tense has changed. Uh, It was in an aorist or a past tense. And so he was saying, in the past... I've not taken up my rights. But now he changes to something called a present tense. And I'm not big into grammar, but I want you to understand this significance because what the present tense means is this. That a condition that has existed prior will continue to exist indefinitely. Do you know what that means? I will never take up these rights, ever. And he wants that point to be clear here. Never. It wasn't something I did back then so I could work myself to a place to take up my rights. What he's saying is that condition and once I have existed will continue to exist indefinitely. 
That is his state while on this earth. His boast is connected to preaching the gospel. This isn't just a job for him. It's a divine commission. And here's the thing. If the Corinthians could reduce this commission to his job, then his boast would be empty. So they might say this. Yeah, Paul, but it's your job to preach the gospel. You see, our job is... You ever heard that argument? That's their job. But you know, my job is this. And so then I could say this too as a Corinthian. So eating at the sacrificial feast, it's an important part of my job. That networking with people, you know. That connectivity to this greater community. It's an important part, you see. And Paul goes, no. I laid down all my rights as an apostle. So really, I'm just like you. I'm a manual laborer. I'm probably lower than you. Because he doesn't want that boast to be in vain. The boast that he is commissioned to preach the gospel just as all God's people are. And so we get to 916. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Amos 3.8, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to read it to you. It really captures what Paul means here. And I want you to think of it because it's using something very visual. And I know lions aren't a regular part of our experience, but just use your imagination a little bit. A lion has roared, who will not fear? So imagine being in the wilderness and you hear a lion roar, what do you do? You tremble. <laughs> you don't go, huh? That's cool, there's a line nearby. No, you fear. Responsively, immediately, under compulsion, you fear because the lion has roared. And then Amos goes on, the Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophecy? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but speak that which he has spoken? It's a response. You're under compulsion. Just as fear to the roar of a lion, so speaking forth God's word when he speaks it forth. God has spoken finally in his son, Jesus Christ, and Paul saw himself as under compulsion. He can do nothing but speak of this gospel. It is a reaction to knowing the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. You get his point? 917. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Some strange language. I want you to, to get, get the point, though. He's actually continuing his slave imagery here, okay? If he had made a choice, like it was a career to preach the gospel, then he'd expect payment for that. But what he's saying is this. I didn't make a choice. Christ chose me just like he chose you. And I am now his prisoner and his slave, the slave of Christ. Jesus' conclusion uh, to his parable of the slave really captures the idea. I'm going to read it to you. You don't have to turn to it. Luke 17, 9 through 10, he says this. A master does not thank a slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? 
So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. The very same idea that Paul expressed, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 4.1 when he says this, Let a man regard us in this manner as slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Notice he mentioned steward here again, so I want to tell you what that is. A steward is someone who labors to bring gain to their master, not to themselves. Did you get that? See, we work jobs and we, we in our mind we work a job to bring gain for ourselves a steward works to bring gain to their master so paul cannot receive a reward from the corinthians because they are the field in which he is planting his reward comes from the owner of the field who commissioned him to plant do you get it he can't receive a reward from the Corinthians because it's God who's given him the work to do. And he's a steward of that work, and God is the one who will reward him. Yes, Lord? 918. Paul says this What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. The idea is this. Paul freely preaches a gospel that is free and that sets persons free. His reward is serving a gospel that liberates persons to serve their neighbors and moves them to love because they've first been loved. That's a pretty awesome gospel. This concept was fundamentally foreign to the values of Corinth where all things were done for personal gain. And I would argue this, it is fundamentally foreign to our own culture. See, we've adapted the gospel a little bit. Tell me if you've heard this gospel before. Ready? Not in so many words I'm characterizing a little bit, but I assure you in content. Profess belief and be saved in this conversion experience, securing heaven for yourself. And then pursue your own personal gain in this life, unhindered by the fear of death. You don't have to fear death, so go and live life with all you got for you. Because you've been saved. Sound like a popular gospel? God wants you to have great abundance in this life, so go live for you. You've been saved. To his glory. I don't even know what those things mean, to be honest with you. It's speaking two things that are diametrically opposed to each other and acting like it's the same message. Here you go. Two things that don't go together, we put together and said, that's good. That's the good news. I can live in this world for this world and have the assurance of salvation in the life to come. You know who gets to be the end of that gospel? me i get to have my cake and eat it too because of jesus sounds a little bit more like the american dream to be honest with you <laughs> i'm just saying if i listen to that i go oh that's the same as what our culture says and the world says maybe that's not the gospel or maybe there's a strain of the gospel in there and it's shrouded by lies 
Let's see if, well, first of all, I want to tell you this. To win is used five times, and I want you to know what that word means because it's pretty crazy. Because we're fixing to look at verses 19 through 23. To win is used five times, and in every single case where to win is used in the New Testament, in conveying conversion, which it is in this case, it represents humility as an instrument of conversion every single time. So how do you win someone in conversion? Through humility. By becoming their slave. By lowering yourself below them and serving and loving them. That's how. That's how you win. You see, in their time, there's a thing called stoicism, and this is what it said. A free man is one who does as he wishes without regard for the opinions of others. That's a popular mantra in our age, too. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm me. Yeah, whatever. Paul reverses this, and the gospel says this. I'm a slave to all and become all things for all men, which actually frees me from everyone because I live under the one Lord who's over all. The opposite of that value you might hear in our culture. See, there's one Lord, and Paul's identity as a slave is in harmony with the fact that his office has been determined by the cross. The cross determines his way, not his vision of what he wants his life to be. And so, let's see if Paul's rationale is in keeping with Christ. I'm going to read Philippians 2, 5 and following to you. Have this attitude in yourselves, all of you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not take full advantage of his rights as God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, being made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You hear the vision of the cross? Does it sound like Paul was following that vision? And it's the vision that God has called us to. So did Christ become a sinner like all men? Uh, No. He actually was without sin. Well, Paul doesn't either. See, he becomes like a Jew, but he doesn't rely on the law like a Jew does. He doesn't act like a pagan Gentile, though he becomes like one without the law as well. Let me read 19 through 23 real quick. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. I want to give you an example, because he mentions it here. To a Jew I became as a Jew, and we might not know what that means, so I I want to bring that into really clear focus, because I think it'll help you understand what it might mean for you to be a Christian in this world. What it might mean to give up your rights. You ready? The clearest example, you know, in Acts 16.3, Timothy was circumcised because of the Jews. That was an example of giving up his rights, which I don't imagine was an an enjoyable experience for him. But in 2 Corinthians 11.24, Paul says this, five times I received from the Jews 
39 lashes. And you might think, well, okay, you got 39 lashes from the Jews. Well, 40 is the most that can be given according to Deuteronomic law. And it renders the discipline close to death. In fact, sometimes they would judge the person and reduce it so it didn't kill him. Paul endured this five times. The lash had three lashes on it, and that's why it was 39, because one more, it would have gone over 40. Five times. Now, you have to ask the question, why? And this is where it really starts to come into focus. You see, the synagogue inflicted punishment for Paul's gospel of the crucified and risen Christ because they saw this as blasphemy. And what was his custom? To walk in, to go to the synagogue and preach the crucified and risen Christ as Lord of all. Blasphemy. You with me? Now, he would also preach about this, which is very offensive, and that's the hope of Israel now included Gentiles. God's plan was for all the world. And he preached it boldly. In the Mishnah, blasphemy warrants to be cut off from the people of God. However, if he was flogged, he would have averted being cut off from the people of Israel. Are you with me? So, the Mishnah would rule this, and I quote, And thy brother seems vile unto thee, this blasphemer. When he is scourged, he is thy brother. If he endures lashings, he is restored as your brother and a part of the Jewish people. So to stay a member of the Jewish community, Paul submitted to the discipline of the synagogue. Do you get the picture? Paul accepted penalties to keep open the option of preaching the gospel message to the synagogue. So here he would go, and he would preach the gospel of Christ, and he would be called a blasphemer, and then he would submit to lashings up to death so that he could stay in good standing with those people so he could continue to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Does that sound like a guy seeking his own good? That's what it means to give up his rights. But notice Paul remains under the law of Christ, right? The law of Christ, what is that? It's the law of love. It's the norm or the principle of Christ's character. It's all that Jesus has accomplished and represents. It's the pattern of sacrificial living for the good of others. He upholds the law of Christ. You see how he's upholding it here? His end is the good of others for the sake of the gospel of Christ. That's the law of Christ. It's embodied, actually, in 1 Corinthians 10, 24. He says, do not seek your own advantage, but that of the other. He didn't tone down his assault on idolatry so as not to offend idolaters. We often like to do that. He didn't water down the gospel to all you got to do is believe and be saved and continue on in your way. Oh, except don't cuss, drink, chew, or date girls that do, you know. He didn't soft pedal the ethical demands of the gospel, that your whole life would be aligned to seeking the good of others. He didn't compromise the absolute claim to Christ alone. 
He never modified the message of the cross, which, by the way, the message of the cross is this call to us to lay down our rights to pursue our life for the good of others. He didn't compromise that message. Instead, he preached a message that was a scandal to the Jews and to the Greeks, to people like us. It was foolishness to lay down your rights to the good life for the good of others in the gospel. Foolishness. Paul would adapt himself for the sake of others. He wouldn't adapt the gospel and its demands. He kept that very clear. And if you do that, you know what will happen? You will be persecuted. This will not be an easy life for you. You'll probably lose your job. It will come at great cost to you and your loved ones to live this way. So why will we not give up our rights to the good life for the good of others? Do you believe that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect? Do you believe He's working all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose? Do you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Are you a follower of the way, the way of Christ, the way Paul followed, the way of the cross? Are you a Christian? Because that's what it meant to be Christian, to be a follower of the way. Then why will you not give up your rights to the good life for the good of others? I have a suspicion I know, at least for me. Satan appeals to the lust of your eyes, the, desire of your li- uh, the, the desires of your flesh, and the pride of life through the call of your world, me, my I have the right to life, personal fulfillment. I have the right to liberty, to pursue what I believe will make me happy. That will give me personal fulfillment. And I have a right to the pursuit of happiness, which I'll use John Locke's original construction, the pursuit of property, of possessions. Those are my rights. And here Satan is appealing. You remember the American dream? A life of personal happiness and material comfort as sought by individuals in the U.S. Satan is offering you all the life that is pleasing to your eyes, my life as I envision it. He's offering you the freedom to be filled with all that is good in this earth, all the things that your flesh desires. And he's offering you the ability to attain happiness for yourself, to be complete and lacking in nothing. Satan's offering life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness through your world. These are your rights. Take them. Eat. Satan asks you as he did Eve. Ready? Has God said you do not have the right to these things? Take it. You will not surely die. Take it. See, God knows in the day that you take these rights, you will be like him in need of nothing, independent, self-sufficient, in need of no one or no thing. He's keeping you from it. Take it. 
and we see this offer, and it's pleasing to our eye. It feeds the cravings of our flesh, and it's desirable for a fulfilling life. Now, here's the problem. Ready? Because it's not just about you. Because, see, here's the thing. You take and eat, and you give also to your family, and you give to the family of God, and you become a stumbling block to all of God's people. That's Paul's point to the Corinthians. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. How can you allow this to exist among you? We're kind of like Cain and Abel. We say like Cain did, am I my brother's keeper? And God goes, what are you talking about? (laughs) Of course you are. Because see, it's not just about you. And as much as you do these things, you give hearty approval to others who do likewise. You are your brother's keeper. That's one of Paul's major points. But why? Why do we take this offer knowing Satan is the father of lies? There's a big hint. We're like Peter. See, Jesus lays out him his path for life, which is suffering and death. Listen to Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Do you hear it? There's your cue. There's your clue. Don't suffer and die, Peter argues. Death is final. I want you to be with me, Jesus. It's best for me. Surely death's not best. Jesus turned to Peter and said this, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. In case you missed the point here, Matthew immediately gives the application, which happens to be the exact application that Paul is giving. Listen closely to 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. One who takes up the cross gives no more appeal for his life. He's headed to death. No more appeals. No more what I want. No more me. No more my. It's all for Christ. And Jesus says, if you wish to follow me, here's the path. Get on this path. It's the path to life. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, the sake of the gospel, you will find it. So why? Why do we not give up our rights to the good life for the good of others? I'll tell you why. Because of the fear of death. Just the same reason Peter was a hindrance to Jesus. You see, Resurrection Sunday is next Sunday, and I want you to get the point of resurrection because it was Paul's point here. He talks about the athlete who disciplines himself and works real hard for a prize, a prize that's imperishable, that's perishable, that will wilt and die and be nothing. Here's the deal. The good life that we're referring to is the good life that a world that is perishing offers you. A good life that will not last. It's a lie from hell. 
it's not the good life. It's a life that's been set aside for destruction and death. And here's what the gospel says. That Christ has fulfilled all righteousness because he came and lived the life that God has called you to. To lay down all your rights and he laid all his down. And became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. And he has imputed that righteousness to you because you can't do it. He laid down his life for the good of the world. And he paid the penalty for the wages of sin is death on the cross. He paid that penalty so that you could be reconciled to God and made whole, fulfilled, because that's what he created you for. Don't settle for the knockoffs of this world and what Satan offers you, because they are perishing. He has offered you life and life abundant in him. But that's not all. You know why? Because he was resurrected on the third day after he was buried, which means you no longer have to fear death. You don't have to take what Satan offers you to this world, promising you life for a world that's perishing. You know why? Because you've been given the certain promise of life eternal through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you too, if you will trust in him, will be raised again to life eternal Death no longer has to determine the decisions that you make in this life to take up your life for yourself that you might salvage it. Do you hear the gospel? Because that's not it. You know what else? He ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, where he judges all, where he is the ruler of heaven and earth. And this one who rules heaven and earth is our advocate petitioning to the Father on your behalf. Who can come against God's elect, the one who rules heaven and earth, he's the one who we serve. He's the one who we're a slave of. Who can come against you? And that's not all. We often stop way back there on the gospel. He sent his spirit, God, very God himself, to dwell among you that God might be present among his people that you could experience eternal life, that you would know the Father and the Son he sent because that's where fulfillment comes. It comes right here among God's people where his spirit dwells, where we give ourselves in love to one another and to a world who desperately needs to know Christ. That's the high calling you've given. That's, that's the high calling that Paul was answering. And so he says this, I'm not like an athlete disciplining myself and working hard for something that is perishable, something the world offers instead. And I'm not like a boxer going into the air with no intent of what I'm doing, but instead I've taken up my cross and I've determined death is the path for me. And I pursue it for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the people, because Christ is worthy. And because my reward, my prize is imperishable. No one can take that from me. No one. The gospel frees you. It turns this whole thing on its head. The gospel now frees you to forsake the good life that's perishable and to live the good life, which is to give your life away for the sake of others, that you might inherit a prize that is imperishable, the prize of eternal life. That's the gospel. Go and live the resurrected life.